Good morning. Thank you again for being here at 8.30. Does it still feel uh, early or is it starting to feel a little bit more regular? Probably still feels early. It does to me. A special uh, greetings to those of you who are joining us by live stream. Thank you. Good morning to you. Um, you are very missed. And I'm sorry that you can't be here this morning, but you are very missed. Thank you for being here uh, virtually. Little theologians, I want to talk to you very quickly. You know, we're looking at Old Testament passages. Is that strange? You come to church and your pastor during the season of Christmas is not preaching from those stories in the New Testament that tell us about uh, the birth of Jesus. Well, we're still studying the birth of Jesus, but we're looking at Old Testament passages that uh, have helped God's people prepare for the coming of Jesus. So we're looking this morning at Micah chapter 5, but little theologians, I want to tell you a story very quickly. When I led my first congregational meeting in our church in Anchorage, we started that job in December, my family and I. And in December in Alaska, it's very dark. And when I got up that morning to go to church and to prepare for that congregational meeting, uh, our closet was very dark, but it didn't matter. It's not like I have tons of clothes. So I grabbed a couple of shoes and went to church. And when I led the congregational meeting, I'm a short person. And so, partly to be clever, but partly because I needed to, I stood on a chair. And as I was standing on a chair looking over the congregation, I looked down and my shoes didn't match. I wore two different shoes. That, that was very unexpected. And I want you to draw a picture of me this morning, but I want you to draw a picture of me doing something that would be unexpected for a Sunday. Our Sunday morning worship service is pretty controlled, isn't it? Very, very ordered. Almost afraid even to sneeze. But what would be something that I could do that would be unexpected? I'd like for you to draw a picture of me. This passage is about something unexpected. We're looking again at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, but before we read the passage, let's pray together. Please join me. Our Holy Father, you make yourself known, even to stubborn people like us. We thank you for doing this by your Spirit and ask that as you do that uh, for us this morning, that uh, you would send us from this place, still doing that, alerting us to who you are in your Holy Scripture. Thank you for being with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Micah chapter 5, the first five verses. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. This is the word of our Lord. So we're looking at these passages very deliberately. As these passages, they prepare us for uh, what's to come in the New Testament. But here at Covenant, we believe that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one single story of God's plan of redemption, revealing that plan to us in words. And this morning, Jesus is born at Bethlehem, not in Nazareth, as we heard earlier in the service. You know, one of the things we need to be aware of is that when we're in danger, all of us become problem solvers. We tend to think there's only one kind of person that's a problem solver, but really, when the danger is very extraordinary, all of us are problem solvers. And when we look at this passage, even though uh, it's hard perhaps to see through it that there's a foreshadowing here of Jesus, uh, when we look in this passage, we need to understand that the people that this passage is addressed to are people who are in the midst of a very great problem. They're enemies at the door. But everyone, when the problem is extreme, is a problem solver. But amidst that problem solving, what's surprising in this passage, what's unexpected in this passage, is that amidst that problem solving, God himself provides the solution to the problem. He is, as it were, the great problem solver. Danger is averted, but danger is averted only from a very, very unlikely source. But just think about that. Here we are celebrating the coming of Jesus, and it has become so, well, easy and natural to us. We stop thinking that Jesus has come to actually do something. Jesus has come to save us from an enormous, significant problem. But we've actually domesticated Advent and Christmas. But there's no surprises here. Just slowly, there are these days that lead up to Christmas Day. And it happens this year just like it did last year. But what Micah chapter 5 does is it reinserts problem into the coming of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't come, well, simply for a holiday. He doesn't come to give us a legitimate uh, desire to have days off from work. He doesn't come to give, give us an excuse for gift-giving. There's a problem. And this passage addresses that problem and says that Jesus comes as God's great sol- solution to that problem. And Christianity is all about submitting to help, but submitting to unlikely help, even unlikely help from an unlikely source. This is what Christianity is about, submitting to God's help, amidst great problem. And the passage opens just in verse 1 with a very dangerous situation with no hope in sight. It's important that we see this. In, in, in verse 1, uh, it opens, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. There's distress in the tone. Uh, there is emergency in the command. Muster your troops. And the distress is actually so bad. What do you think about that expression, O daughter of troops? The distress is so great that, well, the one who is crying out for the emergency is suggesting, so it seems, that the soldiers may even need to employ their daughters in this distress. 
The verse tells us that siege is laid against us. This is not in process. It's, it's right now. Siege is laid against us uh, with a rod they strike. Notice that that's in the present. With a rod they strike. And they actually come very close in their striking. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Close enough, arms reach, to catch him on the cheek. And not just any cheek. The cheek of the judge. Maybe that's a reference to the king, or maybe it's a reference to that time when uh, Israel's deliverers were called judges. This is great distress in verse 1. The background for verse 1 is this, is that King Sennacherib of Assyria was the kind of tormentor that would get in your face and uh, really be a problem for you. The year is the year 701, and King Sennacherib has just uh, captured all of the fortified cities of Judah. He's actually going around Jerusalem, and he is looking for the strongest cities in Jerusalem's estimation, and he is attacking uh, those particular cities. He's actually pointing to Jerusalem, saying to Hezekiah, you're next. Make yourself as strong as possible. You're next. What's interesting is Micah is uh, a prophet who is uh, in Jerusalem, but he's from Moresheth, and so he's from this uh, part of uh, Judah that King Sennacherib is uh, simply annihilating bit by bit by bit. And Sennacherib is taunting King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. Second uh, Kings chapter 18 says that Sennacherib uh, sends uh, delegates up to the uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem and taunts Hezekiah and says, how will you save yourself? Who will you call upon to save you? And then he lays siege against the city of Jerusalem, beginning to build his siege works. And, well, imagine the inhabitants of the city. Micah himself foretold that this would happen, but imagine the inhabitants of the city. Muster your troops, O daughters of troops, How will that ever save us from this madman? It's a very dangerous situation. And in verse 1, there's no hope in sight. In fact, if there is any hope, well, the prophet seems to be dashing that hope. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. But help comes. And... Michael wants the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem to see that, that this help will come, and that's what verses 2 through 4 are about. But until you see the intensity of the danger, you'll never see how beautiful and glorious and wonderful this unexpected help is. It's a great surprise indeed. Now, it's not a surprise to God, but it's a great surprise in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's an older name, Ephrathah, for uh, Bethlehem, but it could be that uh, Ephrathah w- became used as a name for the region of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is so small, so insignificant, that uh, Micah actually uh, uses not just the name of the village, but the region in which the village is. He says in verse 2 as well, uh, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. There's no political influence. So not only are they uh, small, we might say they're small culturally, but so too are they small politically. No influence in the city at all. And yet, from you shall come forth for me. Who do you think that for me is? 
in this section in Micah, there's actually uh, a lot of uh, pronouns that get thrown about. And the pronouns can be a bit confusing. But you understand in verse 2, don't you, that this is God who is saying, from you shall come forth for me, for God, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And even this phrase ruler in Israel is uh, God speaking in such a way that he's speaking about the entire kingdom. During this period, the kingdom has been divided for almost 200 years. There's a southern kingdom, Judah, and there's a northern kingdom, Israel. That northern kingdom has already been destroyed by Assyria. And yet God connects them together. And he says, from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. This should remind us of a a prophet who prophesied about 30 years prior to Micah chapter 5. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin would give birth. Now, he doesn't say that that would happen in Bethlehem. That's what Micah contributes as God makes his will known. But Isaiah has already said that uh, there is going to be uh, a child that comes from a virgin. And Micah, he's talking about that same child. For from you, out of Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler. But this plan, unexpected to everyone in Jerusalem, it's actually been God's plan all along. This is the ruler for me. His coming forth is referred to uh, twice. Uh, This one comes from Bethlehem, but his coming forth is, God says, from of old, from ancient days. This means that this has always been God's plan. This has been his plan to save his people. God has given Hezekiah his kingship. God gave Hezekiah's kingship even though his father was very wicked. But it's not Hezekiah who is going to be the instrument for God's salvation. This has always been God's plan that from this small insignificant city would come forth God's own ruler for his people in, in entirety. Jesus says in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. And it's really important to see that in this passage, that this has always been God's plan. He's slowly making that plan known more and more. But if we keep, uh, keep to this passage, look at verse 3. There's a couple of things that must happen first. Do you see in verse 3 the reference to a woman uh, in labor? And we might think that this woman in labor is Mary, but I don't believe that's the proper way to read verse 3. Try and get Mary out of your head as you read verse 3. The reference to a woman in a childbirth goes back to Micah chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. He's actually picking up on an image that he's already used. And the image is there to show us that there is a kind of timeline involved here in a timeline similar to uh, the uh, nine months by which a woman uh, will give birth. There's this period, Micah says, of agony and suffering until the time is right for the Messiah. He shall give them up until that time. You see that in verse 3. And then uh, also, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. That also seems like a condition before this, uh, this child comes out of Bethlehem, this ruler comes out of Bethlehem. He shall give them up until that time, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Some things need to happen first. 
There's God's timing. He's, he's very much in control of when this baby will be born in Bethlehem, when this ruler shall come forth. That reference to the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel is probably a reference to uh, what happens on the backside of the exile, that God's, God will begin to bring his people together. And certainly after that will be the time when this ruler comes forth from Bethlehem. So there's a delay, but we're not meant to read the delay as if God won't do it. God will do it. And in fact, look at the the confidence that Micah has in what God will do. Uh, Micah says, he shall stand, he will be a king, and he shall shepherd his flock. He's going to be both king, mighty, but he's also going to be compassionate and loving, a shepherd. And he'll do all of this in the strength of the Lord. And he will do all of this in the majesty of the name of the Lord. This one alone, this ruler from Bethlehem, this one who comes according to God's timing, who uh, comes after God begins to bring his people uh, back together, this one who comes is God's own mediator for his people. And he's the only mediator. And when he comes, they shall finally dwell secure, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I want you to go back and reflect upon verse 1. What a dangerous scenario this is. Sennacherib, he's there. He's on the other side of the wall and he's attacking. And what Micah is saying is Micah is acknowledging that this is indeed frightening, but God will deliver us. God has a plan. And it's very unexpected. But it's also very secure. Now what's astounding about this is you'll see that I've included verse 5. There's a sense in which we could uh, say that there is danger, and then God comes in Jesus Christ and averts that danger, rescues us in that danger. And then the sermon could actually be over, and we could, uh, we could then uh, pronounce, this is the third Sunday of Advent. Jesus has come to be our unlikely help in great need. But in verse 5, he shall be their peace actually is the beginning of a new sentence. There shouldn't be a period at the end of the word peace. He shall be their peace. But then look what happens. He shall be their peace. But the setting in Micah 5 is still a setting in which there's danger. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces... What's happening here? You would think that at the end of verse 4, there'd be great trouble. Jesus comes, and then there's no trouble at all. But that's not what happens in verse 5. In fact, there is trouble that is coming. The Assyrians will come into our land, will tread in our palaces. If God, according to his timing, has sent this Jesus, this Messiah, why wouldn't he just end all trouble? Jesus would come and then make all that trouble go away. You know, Isaiah actually warned Hezekiah to resist Sennacherib. Don't worry about Sennacherib. God is with you. And Hezekiah does for a while. And then he collapses under the pressure. And he goes into the temple in Jerusalem, begins to peel the gold off of the doors, peel the gold off of the doorposts. He loses it. 
He, he can't do it. And, and Hezekiah, he strips the gold and he pays the tribute so that Sennacherib for a moment would leave them alone. But I suspect that the real lesson for Hezekiah is to know that even if the Assyrian comes into the land, God is with us. God does allow physical harm. God does allow the the pressures of the world to grow against us, but that doesn't change the fact that God has come to us in Jesus and that he is that secure ruler who will care for us even to the ends of the earth. I did some research on Uh, as you would expect I would do in Micah 5 verse 5, just to see how Protestant reformers dealt with this passage. Because the the passage says that there's going to be peace, but at the same time, uh, there's going to be great difficulty because Assyria will come into the land and tread in our palaces. How is it that I can have peace while at the same time these external pressures are coming in more and more? And at the end of verse 5, we read, Then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. The numbers aren't the confusing part, seven and eight. There's a multitude of shepherds and a multitude of princes that will be raised up to care for Christians, even amidst the onslaught of the Assyrians. There's peace, even while there's hardship. And when you look at what the Protestant reformers uh, are, uh, are trying to wrap their minds around when they come to verse 5, you, 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 they're asking the question that you're asking, well, who are these seven? Who are these eight, these shepherds and these princes? Who are these individuals that will come to help us when Assyria does come in or when nations come in upon the life of the church? You see, that's the point because most of the reformers, not all of them, most of the reformers say that verse 5 is a reference to the life of the church. The New Testament is filled with statements that say that the church will endure hardship in this life, that the church will, will suffer. Even Christians, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, those mature followers of Jesus, even they will be hotly persecuted. There is suffering in the world. But let's not think that that suffering offsets the coming of Jesus That's certainly how it feels when we've domesticated Jesus to such a degree that Jesus is just the center of an annual holiday of gift-giving and warm thoughts. Jesus is the solution to the great problem. That Jesus will be great to the ends of the earth. He will stand and he will shepherd in the strength of God. And this reference here in verse 5 to uh, shepherds and princes, many of the reformers thought these are references to the life of the church, that there is a shepherding that takes place in the life of the church, that there is a rule and authority that takes place in the life of the church. There are princes that serve at the will of Jesus the King. God's given us a church that we might be cared for in her life, even, even amidst great danger. Jesus comes, and we will dwell secure. And I believe we have an opportunity to remember that here at the end of a year that has been a very trying year for many of us, more than merely inconvenient, really trying, has even brought death. And yet we are secure in Jesus Christ. You must believe that. This is what God's word tells us. He is ruling right now. And this is what Christianity is about. Christianity is submitting to very unlikely help. 
but he has come. And the unlikeliness is where I'd like to conclude this sermon. Because Jesus is an unlikely rescuer in a couple of ways. One way I think is quite apparent. He's unlikely in that he is God's one mediator. This is how God saves us. One man, Jesus, who comes to live a perfect life in our place and to take our punishment upon his shoulders and to give us eternal life being the way and the only way. What's unlikely is that this is God's plan to save us. But there's another reason why this is unlikely. It's unlikely because we don't realize who we truly are. We actually are the dangerous ones. We are the ones that need to have the problem solved because we are the problem. What's unlikely is that Jesus has come for me as a sinner. And I want to make this point clear in a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend of his. He wrote many letters to this individual, and we see evidence of uh, Lewis's conversion in these many letters. And this one was written in 1931. And Lewis, in this letter, he contemplates the coming of Jesus Christ, and he says, you know, I, I understand that this Jesus could come and be an example from uh, our ordinary experience, so that... Uh, uh, rather than sinning, uh, I would live a life like him, a life without sinning. Uh, Jesus says that I experience how sin works, but I'm not sure that I need simply a man who is going to be a better example for me. He says, I get it that Jesus is a holy person and I should be more holy. But Jesus doesn't seem to say to me that my holiness will save me from hell. He said, what I couldn't see was how the life and death of someone else 2,000 years ago could help us here and now. And it's not just his example, because the Bible doesn't say that Jesus comes just as an example. The Bible talks about the problem that I have. And Jesus, or Jesus, C.S. Lewis, he goes on, he says the example business, though true and important, he says that's not Christianity. If you think that Jesus came to be an example of how you are to live, you're not quite getting the Advent season. C.S. Lewis saw that and he understood that that's not Christianity. Right in the center of Christianity, he says, in the Gospels and St. Paul, you keep on getting something quite different and very mysterious expressed in those phrases I've so often ridiculed, propitiation, sacrifice, the blood of the Lamb. These are expressions which I could only interpret in senses that seem to me either silly or shocking. And I'm saying to you this morning that God's means of salvation is so unlikely that it is shocking. That plan of redemption is not how you would save your children, but it is how God saves his children. But what makes it really shocking is you need this, and I need this. That's what's very unlikely. That I need someone to die on the cross for me? That I need someone who needs to be the eternal ruler, and that eternal ruler needs to be the one who pours out blood for my salvation? Welcome to the third Sunday of Advent. But watch yourself from domesticating this Jesus. There are real problems at hand, and you're that problem. And I'm that problem. 
And Jesus has come to cover that problem that we might have life everlasting with God the Father. Welcome to the third Sunday of Advent. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that this is your plan, as unlikely as it is. And we thank you that you have brought this plan to fruition, causing it to happen. And we thank you that you have exercised this plan even for such undeserving people as us. We need this plan, and we have it in Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name, amen.